to season two of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brad Fullerton, alongside fellow co-host, Tony Capasso. Both Tony and I are practicing trainee sport and exercise psychologists and use our experience and knowledge to bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. But we don't do this alone. We speak to highly specialised guests who also share their personal and professional experiences with wellbeing and sports psychology. On the pod, we encourage listeners interested in all things sport to tune in whilst we provide insight on what working in the world of sport is like. We ask our guests the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise and hope that after listening to each episode that you've taken something away with you. We want to redefine what making it in sport looks like. We hope that by speaking to guests who have made a successful career in sport, we can do just that. Now, let's get into another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We're continuing our theme for Season 2 where we've been speaking to special guests working in the world of sport. But first I just want to speak to my co-host Antonio. We're on a bit of a run now. Tony's actually showed up for a few episodes in a row. So, how you doing mate? Yeah, pretty good. Honestly, you miss one episode, you never hear the end of it. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know that you'd also miss one earlier on this season right. as well, where you bang on about it. But yeah. <laughs> Pretty good, thank you. I think we're both of us are, are pretty busy at the moment with different sort of tasks that we're undergoing, which I think is probably it's probably a good sign. But it does mean that I think these catch ups are a chance, well, these recordings are a chance, a chance for us to actually catch up, which is always nice as well. So yeah, yeah. it's good to good to see you again. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. you too. I'm looking forward to another episode. Um, today we're speaking to Russell Anderson. Uh, Russell's a financial advisor at Aberdeen Considine. But he's probably more famously known for playing for Aberdeen and Scotland. How are you doing, mate? I'm fine, Brad. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And thanks for coming on to the podcast. A bit of a, a bit of a scoop for us. So we appreciate uh, the kind of networking that got done on the back of this. You might not be saying that in an hour's time. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm sure our listeners will love it, mate. They'll love it. Um, just as we do in the Young Player Wellbeing podcast, Russell, we'll let you just kind of introduce yourself almost so if you could just tell us a bit about your experiences in sport growing up we've already mentioned your sports football but how did you get into it and sort of the level that you played at yeah well it seems like an awful long time ago now um i suppose i was like any other um kid back in the day you just started playing football at school um Obviously, showed enough to get um, included in the school team at primary school, and it kind of just went from there. Uh, at the same time, you were playing for your boys' club, uh, which was just obviously with the, the local boys, mainly from the same school. Um, and after a few years of doing that, I got picked up from the Aberdeen Scouts, uh, just playing at the, at the weekends and uh, in the evenings as well, uh, to the point where you got asked to go down to Pitaudry back in the day. There was a group of us um, that covered a couple of different age groups. Uh, we would go down for training once a week. Um, 
initially it was on the, the car park outside Petaudry, the Red Ash car park. There must have been about 30 of us maybe um, that would go down once a week. And the training was kind of put on by, at the time, uh, it was Drew Jarvie, who was effectively assistant manager of the first team at that point, um, Jockey Scott, mm -hmm. Alex Smith sometimes, who was the manager, um, and then you'd have others like Willie Miller. Um, so the, the quality of the coaching was really good. I think that's probably one thing you would say now, that academies have moved on so much. There are so many teams, there are so many coaches required um, that you you would very rarely if ever see the assistant manager of the first team taking schoolboys for training, never mind on a weekly basis. Um, so that was basically where it started. Um, and you were obviously pushed. Uh, they wanted high standards. You were training with uh, boys that were maybe a year up, two years up as well, which I think helped uh, really develop you. Um, to the point where I got asked to sign a schoolboy form, S form back in the day. Um, and it really just kind of progressed from there. I uh, I got offered the chance to go full time uh, at the end of fourth year, I think it would have been. Um, but I actually stayed on for another year at school, fifth year, um, did my hires and then left at that point there. I was 16 to go full time with Aberdeen. So, um, it, like I say, it's come a long way from what you typically tend to see now with academy teams. They've got um, teams, age groups, starting very young um, and working their way all the way through to the point of being offered a full-time contract or not. So it was nothing like that. But I do remember the coaching being really good. Um, facilities obviously weren't great, and they've moved on a long, a long way since then. But uh, it was... It was challenging, but it was good and obviously uh, good enough to earn a contract. And then it kind of just went from there. Yeah, brilliant. And just to clarify, Russell, what age did you start at Aberdeen then? Because we hear about this pre-academy stuff now. When it's yeah. Like 10. It was nowhere near. I remember signing an S form at 14, but I must have been training with them for a good couple of years before that. So I would have thought maybe 12, 11, maybe 12, uh, I guess. Um, so... Yeah, as you say, uh, these days it, it's actually much younger than that. And I think there's a fear of missing out if you're a club that doesn't start as early as the rest of the clubs. Um, so, it, like I say, it has changed quite a bit from then. But in fairness, that's that's 30 odd years ago. So there's a lot happened in the game since I was coming through at that point. Yeah. Yeah, a lot's changed. I mean, that's one thing that we've kind of heard speaking to, to other guests who have came through that academy system it probably ties quite nicely into the next question what were your experiences with well-being or psychology support within the academy setup kind of leading up into to the more professional level i don't think there was any to be honest i think if you if you're honest they just purely focused on the footballing side of it the aspects in terms of uh, everything that they felt you needed to become a professional footballer. And back then, there really wasn't an awful lot of thought put into the other side of it. I know there's a much bigger kind of emphasis now on uh, well-being uh, for just people, whether or not that's professional athletes or kids, obviously trying to make their way through the academy system. But back then, you really were just... Um, 
being coached on, on the weekly basis by, like I say, the coaches, there was no real thought at all, not what I remember anyway, as to, well, what is your mental health like and uh, looking after your well-being? In fairness, they did have your best interests at heart, but I just don't think it was really thought about. Yeah, something we hear a lot as well. Like There maybe was parts of it being done, but there was never like an allocated or a specific person to do it. And it's just making me think about, at the moment, the SFA, they want clubs in the elite categories to be working under technical, tactical, physical and psychological components, so the four pillars. Would you say that the psychological aspect of that was the only part that was neglected in your experience, or were there others of that as well? Um, I think the the whole way that it's approached now in terms of actually having specific components and then I would imagine they that then break down those components into the different um, parts of it. Um, so you can see the different areas that you need to work on to provide a framework for the children. I mean, there was nothing like that. Um, like I say, that the coaching was, was good, but it was, like I say, it was 30 years ago. So... Um, you weren't even talking in, in those kind of ways about first-team players back then. So to to expect uh, the, the school kids to be coming through and to be given that kind of thought in terms of what was being provided for them um, was, well, it was never going to happen. Um, so, it, yeah, like I say, it has moved on a long way since then. Um, so some of the components would have been included, but just, I think, naturally without putting any real focus on it um, and splitting it down into those particular parts, I would say. Okay. Yeah, just for that. Uh, Tony, you got anything on that for a go? Um, just it's interesting. Was it like we, we speak about obviously mental health in terms of like the well-being side, but there's a big part in sports psychology around almost using it to boost performance. So um, we spoke with uh, another guest a couple of weeks ago about coaches using like buzz, buzzwords like confidence or like being a leader or showing that you're you've got you know you're motivated as a player. Were these words that your that coaches were throwing around when you, when you were in academy as well? And did you ever really actually have an understanding of what you needed to do to try and like show those skills? I don't think those particular words were ever really used. Like I say, it was probably more old school that mm. they were really focusing on. The, the technical side of it. Your attitude as well obviously played a big part in whether or not uh, you would progress and I suppose have a, um, a, a meaningful career. Um, so they would have been looking for particular character traits, I'm guessing, um, but it wouldn't have really been highlighted. I think it's just something as the, the ongoing analysis, the development of the, of the children um, and the monitoring of them, the the reviewing of them, they would have taken note of particular, um, I suppose, traits if they'd shown the, uh, the the qualities that would make you, for example, what they, I suppose, term a leader or having confidence, etc. Um, but it certainly wasn't broken down um, and dissected as much as it is now. Uh, interesting. Okay, so kind of learning a little bit more about the academy setup that was going on when you were there, Russell, but in your opinion, what were some of the most challenging things about being an academy footballer during that time? And if there's any reference to, to well-being or psychological components, then 
even better for us. Yeah, I think probably the one thing to say that they they would never have classed it as an academy back then. I know we do now because that's the the term that's used and everyone has an academy, um, so to speak. But um, it certainly wasn't the term that was used back then. Um, in terms of what that made me think about for um, what I was going to develop out of it. Um, sorry, what was the question? I've forgotten. I've... That's all right. So just kind of what were some of the most challenging things about being an yeah. academy footballer? I think the the pressure to succeed. Um, I think the, the S form that you signed, um, I think I'm right in saying that it was only for a year. Um, and obviously they were constantly monitoring you, evaluating you to see if you were progressing um, in terms of what they saw, what, what was needed um, to, to remain part of the system, which is no different to now. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest challenge. Uh, as one, the, the younger players, like I say, there was a group of players from different age groups. So if you were one of the younger ones, you were having to kind of step up um, and playing against um, other players, maybe one, two years older than you. Um, and at that age, that can be quite a um, quite a challenge, quite a difference in terms of the physical aspect of it. Um, but so in a in a way, I think it did help you progress more quickly because you needed to you needed to. Um, prove yourself against some of the older players. Um, so I would say that was the, the biggest challenge. Uh, they used to have the, the scouts, which is obviously still the case now, would come and watch you in your games at the weekends and stuff. So I think there was always a pressure just to, to continue to perform uh, because you, you kind of knew and it was it made known um, and it was pretty obvious that if, if you weren't playing to a particular level and you weren't consistently doing that, then there were other players that would be knocking on the door, that they would be scouting just in case um, you got let go. So uh, that's where it started in terms of the pressure. And that just carries on throughout your whole career. You've got to perform. Yeah, and I think that's one big thing that's definitely been highlighted from our work with academy players over the last year is that you can almost feel the pressure when you go into that environment. And obviously, we communicate with the players on an individual basis and, and you can sense that. So the ability to deal with pressure is something that players are just going to have to get used to because, like you say, mm -hmm. you're going to deal with that for the rest of, of your life. Another point that you mentioned was about like resilience because you're playing up against boys who are older, so you're constantly being exposed to more challenge like more challenge that you're just going to have to get on with and you're just going to have to do your best in so constantly being exposed to that does build resilience and then over time your ability to deal with those challenges will be um you know you'll be able to do it even better so two interesting points there and just in relation to pressure russell so you're you're from aberdeen and you're also a product of the academy so you debuted at 18 we're going, we're going for 18. Uh, do you feel that that added pressure like to succeed? And we're talking pressure from yourself, pressure from family, from friends, maybe even coaches who have seen you coming through that academy as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, it definitely adds an extra layer. Um, I've seen it. Um, I've been exposed to it myself. I've been on the wrong end of um, it 
at, in times during your career where maybe things aren't going so well and, and you do feel it more than most if you've grown up supporting the club obviously it's the best job in the world anyway but to then play for the team that you supported um uh, there, there's nothing better and I've, I've gone on record as saying that but there were times in my career, especially earlier in it, that the team was going through some particularly difficult periods, as was I personally, performance-wise. Um, and you did feel, I suppose, an extra burden on you as being a, a local. Um, I, I'm not sure if that would ever change. Um, I just think it, it, it comes with it, the territory, to be honest. I think there is a pressure that goes with um, the coaches that have obviously put the time and effort into trying to develop you. Um, they've, um, I suppose, put their faith in you to, to come good and be good enough. And obviously, ultimately, it's the manager that decides if you're good enough to go in the team. But the, the coaches um, that have been working with you right the way through your development um, there will be an element of pressure on them as well, uh, just hoping that you will actually be good enough to make the next step. And then once you have made your debut, consolidate that um, and become a regular. So yeah, there's 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 pressure from all different places. I think for me, you just wanted to succeed and prove people right. Um, because again, like you say, it then puts pressure on your family as well. Um, I had children relatively young uh, in my life and when the team isn't doing so well and there were times when it wasn't, it put extra pressure on them as well. So unfortunately, it comes with football. Um, when it's good, it is really, really good and you wouldn't change it for the world, but there are some pressures that you have to deal with throughout your career. So just on the topic of you joining the first team at such a young age, and you said you debuted at eight, around 18. Um, how, how do you find being amongst a senior team at like such a young age? Obviously, you are technically an, an adult, but you know, you're basically still an, an adolescent. You know, how did you find being in like a senior team, and then how did you perhaps cope with that? I think uh, it's still the same now as it would have been back then but you were still learning the ropes you were young you were still doing some of your ground staff duties back then um so there was certainly no way that uh people were gonna let you get uh, carried away and get ahead of yourself and i think that that's a good way in certain ways that um, the more experienced players will just make sure that um, you are still grounded and you're still remembering the reasons why you've broken into the first team um, rather than getting carried away with the maybe the, the first team exposure. Um, at that time there, we had a, a lot of international players, um, more experienced players. It certainly feels as if squads generally now have become younger. Um, when you look at the the age profile of a lot of them, I kind of tend to remember that there are quite a few experienced players in that changing room. So at the time, even though you were playing alongside them, you just kept your head down. Um, because for me, as good as it was, you still didn't feel like you'd made it. Um, it was just the, the, the first step, um, so to speak. And you kind of, like I say, you knew anyway that if you did kind of get too big for your boots, you'd get brought back down to earth fairly quickly, which is, I, don't, I don't think is a bad thing anyway. Um, so it was, it just took time, I think, to 
build your confidence within the changing room. And that just came as much um, as with performances as anything. Um, mm. Obviously, the better you perform, the, the more your teammates will obviously take to you and uh, they'll actually praise you, etc. cetera. Um, but by the same token, if things aren't going well, um, you're maybe not performing as well as you, you could do, then you've got to accept maybe some criticism, um, some home truths, and that, that's just part of the, the learning process, the, the part of it that goes through from being a young boy to then starting to, to play first team football with, with um, experienced players. Yeah, that, that's great, Russell. A lot to take from that. I like the language that you used where you didn't think that you'd made it because we kind of, a big point that we always talk about on this podcast is like redefining what redefining what making it is because some people making it might be they sign a pro contract, then that may look like the sort of down tools when they get for that. We've seen it before. People think, oh, I've made it. I've got the trackie, I've got the kit, blah, blah, blah. I've made it. Others, it might be a hundred appearances. So, I like that idea of the kind of subjective idea around making it, and and that's clearly um, that you didn't feel that you'd you'd properly made it at that point. And we'll maybe get on to talk about how you did sort of make it in your career as well. The, the other point was about taking on feedback. So, I think that these days players, young players, don't deal with that very well, and. In your sort of day and your experience, if what would be this type of feedback that you'd be receiving if you're talking about criticism from senior players? I think things have moved on a lot. Even from when I retired, I noticed there was a shift in terms of how people uh, would, certain players would speak to other players. I think um, going back 30 odd years, um, you did get some, well, um, you did get some criticism from coaches and it was harsh at times players as well um, because I think they felt that um, ultimately they were doing it for your own benefit um, some players kind of took it on better than others I think there were certain occasions where now it would probably be classed as borderline bullying I think that just goes to show how much it's shifted in terms of what's deemed as being acceptable now compared to what was acceptable back in the day. Mm. Um, it was definitely character building, I'll put it that way. Um, you kind of just had to take it on the chin um, and just come back for more. And I think by doing that, I suppose it does build a resilience within yourself without probably realising it at the time. It has definitely changed now. There's no getting away from that. I think you've got to find other ways to try and um, make the penny drop with um, with players, irrespective of their age, um, whether it's a young player coming through or a more experienced player. Um, I think you need to be a little bit more mindful about how you're positioning whatever you're trying to say to get that across. And in fairness, these days, there is so much more data out there um, for players in terms of their performances, etc. And I suppose it's easier to um, to use that information to kind of get your, your point across. Whereas before, it was very much just anecdotally. Mm. You knew if you had played well or not, and you found out pretty quickly if the coach felt, and likewise, the, your, your teammates as well. Um, it was pretty much sink or swim. Okay. 
Yeah, I think it's just important the point that when someone has given you feedback, they're trying to they're they are trying to help you as much as what it might not sound like. Uh, it might sound like they're having a pop at you, but it's important that to be able to take feedback on in the right ways and then put it into place. Just yeah. moving, Russell. At 21, you suffered an, an ACL injury, so not too long after your your debut. How did this change your outlook on life in general? And do you have any advice for players who might be dealing with long-term injury at the moment? Um, well, from the the start, in terms of when I actually got the, the first injury, it was the Scottish Cup final against Rangers. Um, the game where Jim Layton actually got Injured in the first couple of minutes, we didn't have a substitute goalkeeper. Um, we ended up losing the game 4-0. You, you, you laugh now and you think, how on earth could you not have a sub goalie on the bench for a cup final? But that's, you had three subs at the time. You could choose whether or not one of them was going to be a goalkeeper or not. And the chances of needing a sub goalie were pretty remote. So you could say we were brave, foolhardy, but it, it worked against us. Anyway, that was the game that I got my um, the first part of the injury um, and long story short I was out for about 18 months um, from that point there until I came back properly so I was out for a long period of time at one point I wasn't actually sure if I would make it back at all um, so there was a lot of hard work in the gym that was needed um, prior to that I mean these days there is so much more emphasis on strength and conditioning for young players coming through uh, there certainly wasn't back then um, you did very, you very rarely in the gym, if at all, if you were a young player coming through the the the, the system. Um, so you would do bits and pieces, but you were basically playing with it. Um, so to then be in the gym constantly after the the initial operation, just trying to build up your your leg strength, get your mobility back, all these kind of bits and pieces. It was a a huge culture shock um, and something that I hadn't been used to um, and it also went from you being very much part of the, the squad for training to spending an awful lot of time with the physios on a one-to-one -one basis or any of the other injured players and a lot of the young boys will have seen it firsthand if they're injured even for a short period of time or they've maybe been unfortunately out for longer than that and it does require a certain type of I suppose approach that you know that you're you're going to be spending an awful lot of time on your own and you've just got to have the right mentality to get through it there were some low points in that time where you think oh am i ever going to come back from it but i think i have to give the physios at the time a lot of credit because they could sense when you were feeling good and you were making progress and again it comes back to targets targets in your career targets set by yourself or the physios in terms of your rehab um working to particular stages and once you got there it would give you a little bit of a boost so all the while the team is obviously still the boys are training they're playing games whereas you've almost got to shut yourself out from that and you've got to focus on your own um end game and the targets that you set yourself um for trying to come back from it uh so that was the way i did it and that was the way that i always did it even after that injury anytime i did have a serious one you just kind of got into a different zone um and you knew that you had to do what you needed to do to come back from it because if you didn't do it nobody else was going to do it for you um so it did 
really shape, I would say, my career after that because once you got used to going into the gym, um, it formed a big part of my career afterwards because I knew I had to continue to do the the work um, because as good as the, the surgeon had been, you kind of know that the knee won't be what it was prior to the injury. So it was about maintenance and trying to make your body as strong as possible um, to give yourself a chance because being out for a year and a half, there were moments and times where you think, well, don't actually know if I'm going to come back from this. And that was, it. I was what, 21. So uh, by that time, I'd already had my first son. So you're then thinking, I've got other commitments now, people relying on me to to get paid at the end of the month um, and try and get back in, and get back in the team. So there was a lot going on at the time, especially at that age. But like I say, the, the physios were good. Um, the club was good, um, but at the end of the day, the fam, my family was really supportive as well. But you just had to get your head down and get through. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, cheers for that. So kind of drawing on different people there as part of your support network during injury, just kind of helped to get you through it with the physio, family, and then obviously other people at the club as well. And it's clear that a bit of goal setting was done throughout that. So you, you talked about the different stages. Okay, this is where we need to get to. When we get there, this is what's going to change. So that's good to hear as well. I just wanted to ask, Russell, like 18 months in my in my experience of ACLs, I don't know if it's different now, is longer than usual. So did that mean that you experienced many setbacks along the way as well? Yeah, it wasn't just my ACL. I'd done my lateral LCL as well. So, And because it was that long ago, there were two operations that were needed. Um, the first one was the ACL, and then they had to go back in sometime later to um, do a bit of work for the lateral ligament as well. Um, and it did take longer than... You're right. I mean, these days, I think you'd be back... I don't know. What's the, the average? Maybe seven, eight months for an ACL now. Um, I've heard of some boys do it much quicker than that, but um, the second time I did it, I was back a lot more quickly than that. But yeah, like I say, that was that was a long time ago, um, and it did it it did drag at times. But the other side to it is, if you start making progress and you think, oh, I'm feeling better about myself here, and you've got that goal at the end of it to try and get back into the team, that's what needs to keep driving you forward. Yeah, it's really good. I think. Um... A lot of our players can probably take some some of your the way that you've approached you know setbacks from injuries um, and put that into their own uh, yeah put that into their own training I guess their own rehab would be a better word that's what I'm looking for there so it's um, really nice to hear I think I do like how you constantly are referencing like those goals that you're setting towards and then you said you know just dealing with it in like almost your own way and um, staying very much. Uh, well, what's interesting is that you said that you, you took a sort of step away from the team and let the team focus on what they had to do and you focused on, on yourself. Did you at any point sort of still stay in contact with teammates or were you very much sort of going solo? Well, if you, I mean, you were still seeing them fairly regularly, but if you think about your your working day compared to the, the squad when they have to prepare, report for training, etc. Different clubs will have different um, mm -hmm. ways that they do it, but Generally speaking, if I'm going back to that rehab, you needed to be in for nine o'clock. Um, 
you were working with the physio straight away. The squad would retur- uh, report for training roughly between nine and maybe 10 o'clock. Um, and then they all go out to training whilst you go in the other direction to go to the, the gym, for example. Um, you might see them at lunchtime once they're back from training and you're having your um, your train as well. But when they're coming back and speaking about what's going on at training, so they've got someone um, to kind of refer to, you can't really get involved in that conversation you're asking about obviously different bits and pieces but there is definitely an element of feeling that you're not part of the squad and that that's just um the 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 bare i suppose the facts um that you're you are still seeing them occasionally changing room that kind of stuff in between sessions etc but to all intents and purposes you are very much focusing just on your own individual rehab program. Um, so the, it, it, it can be easy, I think, to fall into that trap of not engaging with the other players. Yeah. Um, so you still have to be mindful about um, seeing them at lunchtime or if there's a, a night out, if there was, then you have to go it, to it Obviously, you'd go to watch the games. You would be in the changing room before kickoff, all that kind of stuff. So you're still visible. You're not forgotten about. And I think that sometimes can be difficult because you're watching the players going away out to play. Whereas you're stuck there thinking, how much longer will it be if I can play again? But on the other hand, it does keep you as part of the squad, even just in a small way. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that because I think sometimes when I've had conversations with players and they've been injured, I've been like, oh, you know, are you still in and around the team? And they're like, no, I've, I've not been to training or anything like that. But I like, I like the that you point you highlighted there where, yes, they go off to training, you go off and do your own rehab. But actually, in between those times, you're still making sure you're actually communicating with them. So you are, although, yes, you're separate, you are still part of that team in a certain way and you are getting involved in the social aspect of the team so having those conversations off the pitch in the canteen having them um, at socials and stuff I think is so important for that um, for just keeping yourself you know mentally healthy and, and keeping yourself still in as a part of that team and, and again going to games and stuff like that is so crucial so it's nice that we, you've gone and, and highlighted that as well yeah kind of helps with the feelings around like that sort of isolated feeling I suppose mm-hmm. that a lot of injured players talk about just the last question on the injury, Russell, was it round about this time then that you started thinking about other careers? Because you mentioned you were out for 18 months, you've got the, your kid, so you're starting to think, oh, I better look elsewhere here. Yeah, it was. Um, you are kind of faced with the, I suppose, faced with the prospect of maybe, as, as well as it had been fairly early on in my career and, and making the debut at a pretty young age, um, you know, then all of a face faced with this prospect of, well, if I don't come back, what am I going to do? Um, and I know a lot of other players will be faced with that um, that decision, whether or not it's injury or not, or just um, they come to a crossroads in, in their life. And I kind of felt that as a lot of the, the players will probably acknowledge listening to this, that you are fortunate enough that you've got a lot of spare time in your hands as a footballer and it's what you do with it. Um because I had other people relying on me in terms of my family, I thought, right, I better go and do something just in case. Um, 
it does end up being worst case scenario. So that was the point I started looking at um, doing a little bit of um, studying alongside football just to try and give myself another avenue if the football wasn't going to work out for me. So if I hadn't been injured at that point, I probably wouldn't have done it because you're working away, you're thinking I'm going to play football for what feels like forever. Um, but it's not. It comes around pretty quickly. And then when you are finished playing, obviously you do have to think about, depending on the type of career you've had, what am I going to do after this? So that definitely forced me into thinking much earlier about what I was going to do. So in a way, it was... Um, they talk about clouds and silver linings, that kind of stuff. Um, I suppose it, it put me on the path to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah, good. So it's just about using that time more effectively, I suppose, is one thing players could take from that. And you managed to get back from that injury 18 months, as you kind of alluded to before. You got your first of 11 Scotland caps back in 2002, and that's a year where you also played in Europe with Aberdeen. Is there any stories or highlights that you'd be willing to share from your time, whether that's in Europe with Aberdeen or representing Scotland? I've got, I know a couple of Aberdeen fans, so I might put them onto this if it's uh, um, Well, that was my first, because they played in Europe whilst I'd been out injured. They'd played against Bohemians, I think, Aberdeen the season before, and it was a it wasn't a great outcome, put it that way. <laughs> We'd been knocked out by them. So to get back in the following season, that was my first experience in European football. We played a team in Moldova, uh, which was at that point there, it felt like the middle of nowhere. Um, that was the qualifying round. We managed to get through. We beat them 1-0 in aggregate, beat them 1-0 at home and drew with them 0-0 away. It was actually the same stadium we played away when, um, that I played Scotland a few years later when we played against Moldova. Um, and then we got drawn against Hertha Berlin in the next round, which was a big tie because... Yeah. The Germans, they'd, um, they decided they were going to um, show it on German TV. So it was a really big crowd. And they were going well at the time, whereas obviously our previous recent European exploits hadn't been great. Um, the reason why we'd got into Europe, uh, our, our form had improved, but we were still, I don't know, a little bit hit or miss, inconsistent, I would say. And we ended up going out 1-0 on aggregate to them. We drew 0-0 at home and um, away from home, we conceded a goal in like the last couple of minutes of the game. So we went from, I actually had a header cleared off the line about five minutes before that we put us through to conceding one two minutes later and going out 1-0. Um, so it was a real kind of, <laughs> what would you say, kicking the balls. Um, <laughs> And they were a decent team back then. We played in the uh, the Olympic Stadium in Berlin, which was in the process of being renovated for the World Cup. So it was a really strange kind of atmosphere that half of it was a work, a building site. Um, and then you saw what it was like uh, once they'd completed it for the World Cup. When would that have been? 2002? It was in Germany. No, yeah. 2000, it was 2006, was it? Yeah, 2002 was um, Japan, I think. 2006 was Germany. So you could see it was the makings of a 
cracking stadium. Um, anyway, it was that night I actually got told I was getting called up for the Scotland game. Um, it was my first call up. Um, I got told about 20 minutes after we'd been knocked out that I was going to be announced in the squad. I think it was the, the next day or the day after. So you went from being lower than a snake's belly to then from a personal point of view thinking, wow, that's um, I've come a long way from getting back from injury. Mm. Uh, the My debut against Iceland, there's not much to say about it other than I didn't think I was going to get on because I stood in the touchline for about three or four minutes waiting to get on. The ball wouldn't go out to play. So you're sitting there thinking, referee's a way to blow the final whistle here and I'm not going to get on. Uh, thankfully, I did. The, Barty Vokes was the manager. We won the game 2-0 and he stuck me on centre mid. I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not even sure if I touched the ball um, because at that point there, it was just really a case of seeing the game out. So in terms of having an influence on the game it was negligible if, uh, if at best uh, but it was my first cap um, and obviously a great feeling um, to get it and then we played Canada about three or four days later actually um, in a friendly at Easter Road and we beat them 3-1 and I started that game there um, I actually gave away a penalty that night <laughs> um, but we won 3-1 um, so it was a it was a good time for me actually in terms of playing regularly, getting back to the kind of form that I knew that I could play in, and I'd actually been playing my preferred position of centre half at that point when I first broke into the, the first team. I was playing right back, as you kind of tend to find with young defenders coming in, they maybe don't think they've got the physical presence or the experience to play. Um, in the spine of the team. So a lot of the time they'll get pushed out a little bit wider. So by this time, obviously, I'd um, kind of um, made my position in the centre of the team. And uh, it was actually, yeah, it was a really good time. Uh, things were going well. I felt like I was playing well. And um, I was in the squads regularly for quite a period of time after that. Yeah, good. So great to hear that you kind of came back from that big setback and you were rewarded with appearances for Scotland over, you know, a significant period of time. And I suppose that good form that you spoke of sort of continued um, over the next few years. You eventually got a move to Sunderland from Aberdeen for a million quid, which a lot. So tell us a bit about your time there, because I know that probably didn't go as well as what you'd hoped but could you tell us about some of the highs and lows of that period well it was definitely more lows than there were highs um it was i mean it was roy Keane. there was a manager at the time sunderland had just won the championship um he'd come in when they were bottom of the league and he took them on this incredible run that they won the league quite comfortable comfortably i think getting over 100 points so they were looking to strengthen as they went into the Premier League. I got the call to say that they were keen, pardon the pun, and um, <laughs> it kind of went from there. So I was uh, I was excited about going, but it's what you probably kind of tend to find. A lot of transfers, players will be going to clubs that they don't know a huge amount about. Um, and having been at Aberdeen for, well, 10, 11 years at that point, you're going from one club 
one city, that's all you've ever known to new place to live, new club, new league, um, everything. So it was really exciting um, on one hand, um, but obviously I, I was a little bit nervous as well about all the all the changes um, that were going to be coming our way uh, because the family moved as well. Um, and to be honest, my career at Sunderland was pretty much blighted by injury. Um, I didn't play an awful lot. I enjoyed my time when I was there. It was a really good club. It's huge um, potential. Uh, you hear everyone speaking about it, um, and they haven't quite tapped into that enough, I would suggest. Mm. They seem like they're going in the right way now, but um, definitely I think they've underachieved given the the fan base that they've got, the infrastructure and everything. Um, so my time there, like I say, was pretty much summed up with quite a few injuries. I had an ankle reconstruction about three months after I signed for them. So I was out for about four months. I then did my ACL again, um, which thankfully I wasn't out for as long as the first time. Um, so between them, and by the time I got back from injuries and um, struggled to get in the team, um, I ended up going out on loan a couple of times, once to Plymouth, another one to Burnley, actually, the season that they got promoted to the Premier League back in the day when Owen Coyle was manager. Right. But I did my cruciate a month into a season-long loan. Um, so, again, it, it, it kind of just summed up my time in England. Um that the move itself and being down there and being part of a different league and playing against and playing with different players, it was refreshing actually having played at Aberdeen for about 10 years. But um, there's probably, well, there is, there's no getting away from it. There's an element of what if. Um, and I don't have any regrets because I think I was lucky enough to play football for 20 years. But uh, you do sometimes wonder if... Um, if things had worked out differently down there, how my career might have played out, to be honest. Um, but like I say, there's not much you can really do about it. Um, and it came back to the whole thing about, well, just resilience, having to recover from setback after setback. And um, again, you would put that down to family being around you, um, the support of the staff, uh, the medical staff, especially at the club. Um, and I suppose just a, a desire to get back and play again if you'd been out injured. Yeah. And Russell, was it a no-brainer to go like when they came calling kind of thing? It was. There was there was a lot going on in Scottish football back then. Um, teams were struggling. Aberdeen were in a lot of debt. Um, banks were... Uh, scrutinising everything that they were doing and basically I had a year left in my contract. Uh, I assumed at that point there with injuries etc that I would probably be at Aberdeen for the rest of my career because I was 27 at that point and you kind of tended to think that if you hadn't moved by then maybe you weren't going to. Mm. So it was a wee bit of a surprise. Um, but a big part of the reason for it was the club needed the money. Um, they needed to try and pay down some of the debt. Uh, so with me only having a year left in my contract at that point, I think they were worried about me maybe walking away for nothing. So they decided to try and cash in. Um, so 
I wasn't expecting it initially, but when I got told that that's what their plan was, then obviously your agent is then going to have to try and look for options. Um, and then it comes back to the whole pressure again about scouts coming to watch you, um, kind of knowing that uh, the, the club have made it pretty clear that uh, there wasn't going to be a new contract for me there um, just because of the financial difficulties and I think it was it was pretty much well known across the board that Scottish football at that point was um, going through a difficult period so the Aberdeen weren't the only club that I think they were all cutting their cloth accordingly. In, interested well obviously moving from Aberdeen to Sunderland is it's a massive move you said the family went along with you and uh, obviously there's a, this you know the fee that that Sunderland paid for you as well was a relatively large well it was a large sum um, did you find that that changed the pressure that you felt in playing football as as well? Uh, I think maybe initially, um, I suppose there is an element of hmm, supporters for your new club maybe haven't seen you play before, so they're you're having to prove yourself all over again. Mm. You've, um, you've had a few years kind of building up your profile at one club and then all of a sudden you're having to start again and people are looking at you in terms of well is this player any good why have we signed him is he going to be good enough to play for us that kind of stuff so again it's just constantly having to kind of prove yourself so I suppose that there, there was a, an element of pressure from that perspective as well yeah yeah did you um how, how do you sort of obviously deal with a lot of setbacks with the injuries and it's it's a little bit of a like who knows what could have happened but how do you deal and bounce back from those setbacks and letting them sort of drag you down too much good question i think you can go one way or the other and i yeah. think it, it, it's as simple as that you can either feel sorry for yourself and just um wallow in self-pity or whatever you want to call it or you can go the other way and think well if I don't do this, no one's going to do it for me. Um, and the, I suppose the goal, the carrot is always, well, if you manage to get back playing, that's ultimately what, you, what you're what um, in the game for. So it, it really was as binary as that. It's as simple as that. You either approach it in the right way, the right mindset, because if you don't, then you will just kind of, slip away and uh, before you know it your contract will not get renewed and then if you're not fit at that point there no one else is going to look at you because you're a player with a bad injury record and there's plenty of other players out there that they could look at instead yeah cheers for that russell um so a bit of a challenging time at sunderland with the the injuries um of course, you then went back to Aberdeen after that and had another successful spell there. So for our listeners, it's not it's not all doom and gloom. Um, no. Russell, we just wanted to chat a little bit. Uh, you mentioned before that your son's been involved in academy setups both in England and in Scotland. So what are some of the things that you've learned being on the other side of things as like an academy parent? And that can go for, you know, the family as a whole. What are some of the challenges with that? I think the main challenge in 
I find this difficult sometimes to square that circle is that they require the player to focus 100% in improving themselves as a football player, which I can understand why, because the level of success for the amount of young players that go through academies is pretty minimal. But at the same time, you also have to think about, um, because the, the success rate is so small that you can't really put all your eggs in one basket. You have to have a more broad, balanced approach to life um, because they have to be kids at the end of the day to start with. Um, and I think it's getting that right balance between giving them the support if they want to fulfill their dream and be a, a professional footballer, um, but also reminding them that there's more to life than football. Um, and I think that can be quite difficult at times um, because the clubs will say that they've got the players' best interests at heart. And I, I don't think they, um, they haven't, but I think their, um, their interests are slightly differently aligned to what maybe the parents' interests might be. Now, some parents might look at this differently than others, and they might think football that is the only thing that they're going to focus on. And if it works out, great, the rewards are there and everyone can see what the rewards are. But I think um, having a balance to the child's upbringing and their development and their enjoyment of it as well, because I think sometimes you can lose sight of um, your enjoyment for football um, if there's a pressure on there to be part of an academy setup. Yeah, I've had conversations with people in the past whose sons or daughters have been in an academy set up and they say that the pressure at a young age is almost too much. It's so much pressure on kids that they end up just going, I don't even like that anymore. Yeah. Uh, and then interesting what you mentioned about, they say they have the, the, the kids' best interests at heart, but is it maybe only in a, a football sense you spoke about they only want them to improve as a footballer do you think there's not enough given to players in terms of developing in other areas of their life off the pitch is it quite focused on that athletic identity as opposed to social or other other areas of the life i think so and i mean to be honest it's i mean different clubs will have different ways that they approach this so it's not for me to say um uh what what's happening at, um, at, at all these different clubs because they'll have different approaches. Um, and I, I know I'll use Aberdeen as an example that they like to give the, the, the players experiences of playing in tournaments overseas, etc., cetera, um, which is great education for them. They're getting to go and visit different places. They're playing against different teams. And They've had a couple of recent successes and you can see how much the kids and the parents have enjoyed those. And you think that's that's great life experience for the kids. And they'll be able to look back on that and think, oh, I remember that time fondly. Um, but I, I just think generally speaking that if they talk about the amount of time that has to be put in by um, a child to become um, an elite athlete, an elite player, um, and I sometimes think that there are, it doesn't leave much space for anything else. 
um, if you're wanting to have a more rounded and balanced approach to their upbringing. Now, like I say, some parents and children might think, well, actually, I'm happy to sacrifice everything else. Mm. Maybe that's what you have to do. But clearly, when there's such a small amount of children that make it through the academy system, um, it's a high risk to take for very few players that will succeed. Yeah, it's a massive pressure, I think, a massive risk to go all your eggs in that basket of my kid's going to make it because what happens if they don't, like you said, that are high? And that's when things like identity crisis and, you know, mental health problems can actually come into that as well because you've been so driven towards one thing and everyone around you has been telling you that you're maybe going to get this thing and then you don't get it. Then what do you do? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty dangerous, I think. I think Russell. There are players that you'll see that have been involved in academies from a young age and they're, they're, they're earmarked as the potential ones that could have a real career. So they've been in it for seven, eight, maybe nine years and then come the point where they actually are due to receive a, a pro contract. Maybe that's the point that they've maybe just plateaued and they haven't developed as much as some of the other players, there may be later developers that have come through more strongly. So they've gone from, like you say, being told that they are going to be the next player to play for whoever it is, to all of a sudden then being told you're not actually getting a contract. And that is, you, you are, your identity is surrounded by the, the club that you think that you'll, your whole life has um, been well, a big part of your life has been um, influenced by that. So it, it, it is difficult, I think. Um, but I also completely acknowledge and appreciate that if if you want to be um, a professional footballer, you do have to put the, the effort in. It's not going to come easily. And I think that's, like I say, that's where I think it's sometimes difficult to square that circle. I think I like the conversation around yeah like making sure you're building up those multiple identities rather than just focusing on one um i'm aware there is there has been a shift um and, you know through the knowledge i have of academies there is a lot of work that goes in especially with full-time scholars around making sure that they're trying to develop other sides of of that identity and um they call them like passion projects they've got other words to them so i think it is there but like you say russell i think it's it's, it's interesting to sort of see how much the coaches really buy into that or are they still you know focusing on, on those players actually just developing as athletes and it's just something they're putting in there to almost tick boxes rather than like really actively get um these young players to get on board with um, so it's just interesting point yeah and no, a good conversation um just gonna have to move on uh conscious of time but Russell, how have the skills that you developed in football been able to transfer to your current role as a financial advisor? We talk about uh, we talk about transferable skills a lot. So, which did you pick up, and how have they helped you? I think you can't understate the importance of teamwork. I would say having a common goal, working towards it. I think work ethic, um, in terms of doesn't matter what you do. Um, I think success will really come from how you apply yourself. Um, that was the way I kind of approached my career. Um, and I think that's the way that I'll, I'll always approach things. Uh, 
the the goal setting in terms of what we've spoken before that's still the way that i go about what i do um okay it's a it's a different field now in terms of my job these days but it's still about having goals and targets that you've got to try and aim for um and i suppose the, the big thing um is the, the resilience i think that comes with um the disappointments that came in the career because they're definitely going to be more lows than there are highs in a career in football that there's that's just fact um i think it probably still it does it stands you in good stead for moving on to do something else because you will get knockbacks um you will get disappointments and uh i suppose it's just how you respond and react to that which um will determine how successful you are and, and what you do um so uh, yeah, there's a lot that's made about transferable skills, et cetera. And I do think it's um, it's the people skills that go with um, engaging with different people across the club, whether it's your teammates or managing uh, the, the coaching staff, um, the people behind the scenes, the supporters, it's all people that you've got to kind of engage with across your career. Um, and you might engage with them in a slightly different way. It's no different, I suppose, to the career that I'm doing now. You'll be speaking to different people and you've got to kind of gauge how you actually um, speak to different individuals. Uh, so there's plenty that I think can be taken from football, but I would say the main one is it's not just football. I would say it's work ethic. Yeah, I, I really like that. I think we've had a lot of guests come on and speak about how all these skills they've developed through uh, being involved in academy setups and, and elite sport have helped set them up almost with the right mindset for career outside of just football and in, in, you know, for you, like being a financial advisor. Um, do you think almost being involved in such and, and being surrounded by an environment gave you a little bit of like a, a boost or an advantage over people that perhaps haven't been dealing with you know, constantly feedback or being critiqued or you know constantly having to set yourself goals do you feel like perhaps it give you a little bit of a boost over let's say the normal transition that people would take through life to get into a similar role i think you make a really good point there you spend your life training monday to friday and you're either defined by your success or failure on a saturday um and there's you go back to when you play there was nothing better than training all week training well playing on a saturday winning and playing well and you think well that's um that's my hard work has paid dividends so to speak so there was always that kind of target um in reward or not um just with the way that football is so I think you then come into this um, line of work or any line of work, and if you're you're used to, like you say, being critiqued um, and having success or failure so obviously put in front of you regularly, and I suppose dealing with it and then recovering from it on a Monday if you haven't had a, bad, a good result, or um, dealing with it the other side if you have had a good result, you have to go again and not be complacent. I think that definitely um, sets you uh, uh, in good stead for just life in general, I think. Yeah, good. Cheers for that, Russell. And just moving on again, we've spoken about some some challenging moments. We've spoken about some successful moments in your career. But if you could just share with us and our listeners 
some of the standout moments in your career and maybe how they influenced the rest of your career or how they kind of shaped you today? Uh, well, I suppose we've spoken about the Scotland squads, etc. I would say that the biggest success, if you wanted to put it down to that, and it was as much because it was a surprise for me towards the end of my career, I thought actually I'd probably missed the boat to, to win any uh, silver, whereas was when we won the League Cup 2014. Um, I'd come back up to Aberdeen, uh, not expecting an awful lot because I was injured at that point. Um, so it was a bonus to get back playing. Um, and it took me a wee while to get back to the kind of form that I'd, I, I was comfortable with. Um, so to get that opportunity, I would say late in the day in my career wasn't something given the last few years prior to that i'd had definitely more setbacks and disappointments than than good points um that would be the one thing that i'll probably look back and think uh okay my career in england didn't work out the way i would have wanted but would i have had the opportunity to come back to aberdeen if it had gone a different way maybe not so i might not have had the opportunity to um to win the league cup with them in 2014 so that would say would be my highlights i mean there was different spells throughout my career when anybody listening when you're playing well you're enjoying your football the team's doing well and you're playing well like i said already there's nothing better um you enjoy going into work to train you enjoy uh, the the big games and you enjoy being part of the team even um, the social side of it with the players where, like I say, you've got a good changing room, you've got a common goal. And there's a, there's a lot to be said about um, being part of a, a team that's uh, winning games and being successful um, across a season. Um, so the, the highlight would be, would be the, the, the League Cup. Um, but there were plenty of other periods in my career that I look back and I think, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. That's brilliant. And what about your top three tips for looking after your well-being? So if you're feeling a bit low or, you know, how would you maintain well-being or sort of promote it? Uh, this is probably something that I would more think about now than I would have when I was playing, um, just because there's so much information out there now for people to try and help um, people's well-being. But I think exercise obviously if you're a football player you're going to get plenty of exercise um but i think having something else to focus on at times whether or not that's family or um hobbies or something i think is good to kind of distract you from football i think you need a good balance there i think you need to focus on it when obviously at the right times and you need to give it your full attention when when it when it's needed but I do think having an escape of sorts and having someone else to turn to, someone else to turn to, or having, like I say, a hobby or something uh, is good to kind of switch off because you can't always be thinking about it. Um, that's important. Surround yourself with good people. Um, I think that's important as well. Uh, I've been lucky enough, family, and just people um at the clubs i've played with over the years i've been surrounded by good people and they've definitely helped you at difficult stages of when i was playing is that two three i don't know i'm, I'm not scraped, sure i'm gonna scrape three out of that don't worry. 
And uh, then just lastly, Russell, have you got any advice for young players that you've offered a lot throughout the episode, but if you were to leave them with anything, what would that be? I would say, going back to the point I made before about working hard, um, that's a given. Um, and it's easy to say it, um, but I think it's consistently doing it to give yourself the best opportunity. But you've also got to remember why you're doing it. You've got to enjoy it. And I think the more you work hard, the more you tend to enjoy something, I think. Um, and even when things are going maybe not the way you want them to, it's sometimes easy because I think we've, we're probably all guilty of it at some point of maybe not making that run because you think, oh, but that's where you've got to actually turn it on its head and say, right, that is the reason why I'm going to make that extra run. Because I do genuinely feel the harder you work, you will get your rewards. Um, and I think you've just got to kind of base it on that. Now, you might not always feel that that's true, but I, I can tell you right now, if you don't, then there's more chance it won't work out for you. Yeah, that's probably a piece of advice to end on all of that. Tony, have you got anything to chip in with me? No, I, th I think those last two questions you just answered there, the you know, top three tips around well-being and then advice to young academy players was, was really good. <laughs> so I, I don't know if you did give three or two, but I think that like the actual quality of the answer you know, backs it up anyway. Um, and I like that it's, it's very similar themes to stuff that we've encountered before. So I think it's good that that's consistently coming through. And something that our players can hopefully start getting on board with and starting to think about. I know you sort of said yourself, Russell, that you didn't weren't too worried about the exercise part. And of course, when you when you are a footballer, that might not be what you're focusing on because you are getting a lot of that in anyway. But you know, using those support networks and people you have around you and making sure you're developing those constantly is is, is fantastic. And and again, putting that hard work in. And I think you said it right. It's that consistent hard work. I think people under the misinterpretation that hard work means that you need to be absolutely like going for it all the time and actually it just means it's perhaps just doing those extra bits but on a consistent basis not you know it's not some rocky montage training movie that means you're going to make it it's actually just consistently hitting those marks that you've been talking about throughout this whole episode so it's been really good yeah brilliant uh, we're going to hand it over to you now russell if there's anything that you want to promote or or punt then this is your opportunity to to go for that well i think i said to you before it'd be rude of me not to kind of punt i've got a, a foundation that we set up in aberdeen about 12 years ago now i think um so i think it's a perfect i suppose um, opportunity just to kind of highlight that the, the work that we're doing with um, young people in Aberdeen. Um, so it's something I got involved with when I was still playing. My um, my involvement with it is very different now. Before I would take them for actual coaching, um, kids, primary school kids, kids that were coming from backgrounds that were a little bit more challenging. Um, and I think Aberdeen unfortunately for a lot of people see it as being a very affluent city um and there is an awful lot of wealth in it but it's not always evenly divided shall we say um so there is like in loads of other places there is poverty here um and the whole point of the foundation is just to try and and help kids that are living in some of the more deprived areas of the city um whether or not that's working with them in the schools just to try and improve their 
um, their health and well-being, their physical health, their mental health, um, all these kind of different bits and pieces. So we've been working on it for, like I say, about 12 years now, and we've actually managed to build up a fairly successful um, community engagement program, and it's going really well at the moment. So um, it's something that means a lot to me, actually. It's grown up over the, the years that we've been doing it to the point now where it's um, it's a huge part in a lot of people's lives. So that's something that we do alongside the day job that I've, I've got with Aberdeen Considine. Oh, that's brilliant. Good to hear you're making such a positive impact in your local community, Russell. And what's the name of the foundation? It's the Russell Anderson Foundation, as simple as that. So remember uh we'll be sure to share some details in the link to this episode as well so if you want to check that out then just go into the description and, and click on that and you'll get some more information there uh russell it's been brilliant speaking to you um we've actually run a wee bit longer than expected but it's not um it's not every day you get to speak to someone who's had such a successful career so really appreciate you coming on and i'm sure our players will really appreciate all the the insight that you've given no, thanks, Brad. It's, it's been enjoyable, actually. Um, so, likewise, Tony, thank you for having me on. No, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. 100%. Go well. Be sure to tune in next Monday when we'll be back with another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. Cheers. Cheers.